1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That's where we'll be. And it says this. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. 
My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings up, brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to teach us today. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word, which we cling to and we we proclaim and we publicly read together because we recognize that they are not man's words, they are Your words. And You tell us that Your words are living and active. No matter how old they may be, they are still alive. And so we, we read them and we come to You this morning with open hands asking You to teach us. Asking You to minister to us, to speak to us, to, to encourage us where we need it, to convict us where we need it. And Lord, we ask that as we leave today, we would leave worshiping. That we would not leave burdened, but that we would leave recognizing that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Meet us today, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I came across this, um, this project that the New York Times did a few, uh, actually probably a few months ago. And um, what they were doing is they were taking photos of all different parts of the world in the midst of a COVID shutdown. And some of these photos are just going to cycle through. And they took these photos of just places that are normally bustling and full of life and full of tourists and people, and they're just empty. And it's kind of creepy and eerie a little bit to see some of these places so barren and so empty and so lifeless. And as I was looking at some of these photos, it made me just think of how how much these photos are kind of a representation of how so many of us have felt over the last year. And sometimes there are, there are things that happen that are so painful and traumatic that it leaves us feeling much like these places, just empty and lifeless and hopeless and forgotten. I mean, when have you ever seen a California freeway look like that? Never in your life have you seen that, right? Not even at like 3 a.m. But as we come to the opening of the book of Samuel, it opens with a woman in that place, in this place of, of lifelessness and emptiness and hopelessness and, and literal physical barrenness. And it's this woman, Hannah, where she feels this, this grief over not having a child, not being physically able to have a child. And this was really 
quite devastating, especially in the culture that Hannah lived in, because she lived in a culture where for a woman, your children were your significance. They were your security and your protection. We did, this is not a culture where social securities and 401ks and all those things exist. Your, your retirement plan is your children. They are your protection. They are your future. Culturally, they are your significance and your worth as a woman. A, a mother that had many children, she was revered and she was honored and respected. But a woman who couldn't have children, she was just pitied. And this is where Hannah is, and it's interesting because Hannah's name, and names are always significant in Scripture, her name means favored one. And she, as the favored one, has no favor, has no children. And we come to the book of 1 Samuel, and last week we walked through everything that's happened in Scripture before 1 Samuel, and we see how, how bleak of a landscape it is for the people of Israel. They've forgotten who their God is. There's no one worshiping the Lord. In fact, the book right before it, historically right before it, the book of Judges, tells us that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one's following the Lord. And so Hannah, as we open this book, is kind of like a picture of Israel. Israel is a barren nation, a barren land that's dried up because they've forsaken their God. They've gone to worship other gods and forget the God that brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. And they've, be, they, they've become barren because of their idolatry. It's, it's as if the Lord has dried up Israel because they've forsaken Him. You remember the covenant God made with Moses that we talked about last week? That if you are not faithful to me... It won't go well with you. There will be blessings for obedience and there will be uh, hard times for you when, you when you don't follow me and you don't walk with me. That was the covenant God made with Moses. And that's exactly what's happening. The Lord's dried them up. And so Hannah becomes like this rep representation of Israel. Fruitless, barren, dried up. But interestingly, Israel too is the favored one. Because Israel is the chosen people of God. And so like Hannah, who is, her name means favored one, and yet she's barren and dried up, the people of Israel are the favored ones of God, and yet they too are barren and empty and lifeless. And so Hannah serves as this picture for us of Israel. And it, it brings up this, this lingering question that just kind of hovers over the beginning of 1 Samuel of how can the favored one be barren? How do those things operate together? How can the favored one be barren? And the Lord is about to do something remarkable through this woman, through this seemingly insignificant and weak woman, yet full of faith woman, whose faith in the Lord is going to turn the tide for the entire nation of Israel. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I typically don't do three-point sermons, and I did one, and I'm going to do another one today. Um, I know. But I feel like uh, when we're in such a long narrative, organizing it kind of probably helps our brains a little bit work through this passage. So we're going to break it up kind of into three sections this morning. The first one, I want to focus us in on Hannah's pain. Her pain in her story, which we come to at the very beginning. We see it here in the first eight verses. We're introduced to three characters. We have um, a man named Elkanah, who is uh, a man that, that seems to be worshiping the Lord. Every year he would take his family uh, to the dwelling place of God's presence in the city of Shiloh to worship the Lord, and he'd worship in there. So it seems to be that Scripture is telling us that this is a man that, that is trying to follow the Lord in the midst of a people who are not. And yet this man has two wives, one named Hannah and one named Peninnah. 
Now, just a, an important side note, whenever we come to the Old Testament, we are going to see things that you read and you're like, what is happening there? Right? One of which is polygamy. You will see men that are married and have multiple wives in the Old Testament. When, when we read those things, we often have to understand that a lot of what we read in Old Testament narrative stories are descriptive and not prescriptive. Meaning they are describing for us what's happening, not necessarily prescribing for us what we should do. Right. And here's an example of that. Elkanah has two wives. We know from the totality of the revealed word of God throughout all of scripture, that is not God's design. God's design is for one man and one woman to be married and be in a lifelong covenant with one another. Okay, Jesus tells us that. Okay, that is the prescribed, the prescription from Scripture for us as far as marriage goes. But these, Scripture is describing for us the situation to let us know. It's not trying to hide these details. In fact, even David, you know, who, who is the, a man after God's own heart, the, the king on which Je, the, whose throne Jesus would sit on, even he himself had multiple wives. Okay, but it's not describing it to us as like, hey, men, you should go try to take for yourself multiple wives. No, it's just describing for us the situation. It's just important for us to know that. But here we have this family, this nothing family from nowhere. In fact, that the, the country of Ephraim might not sound familiar to us, but that's Bethlehem. Okay, so if, you know the, if we know the biblical story, we know Jesus comes from Bethlehem. So if you know that, you know there's something, something important about Bethlehem, even though this is a nobody family. And so we have these, um, these two wives, Hannah, Peninnah, and then we have the husband, Elkanah. And it's likely that Hannah is the first and most beloved wife of Elkanah. In fact, we could, we could probably guess that this was his first and only wife, and because she couldn't have children, maybe Elkanah took a second wife in order to um, have children and have descendants. That, we don't know that for sure, but that's a decent, a decent assumption based off of what's happening here. But we're told that, that, uh, that Elkanah loves Hannah because every year that they would go up to make sacrifices, he would give her a double portion. Right? They would sacrifice animals to the Lord and then they would eat some meat and he would give Hannah a double portion because he loved her. Okay, that gives us maybe an indication of what's happening here. But we're told that Hannah has no children. And that sentence kind of flows like really easily off the tongue for us as we read that. Hannah had no children. But that phrase was the haunting, inescapable reality of this woman's everyday life. She had no children. That was just the refrain over her life. Everywhere she went, that defined who she was. She had no children. She had no significance. She had no worth. That was her everyday. She longed for children. We know that. And so you can imagine the ever-increasing shame and sorrow of every year that would pass by and she didn't have a child still. I'm sure it wasn't for lack of trying, to try and try and try and yet no children. And if it's true that she was the, the wife of Elkanah and eventually he had to take another husband, you can imagine the shame of that, right? That she cannot provide children to the man she loves. She can't have her children. And so then she must watch her husband whom she loves take another wife. And the scorn that would come from another child being born. And another child being born. And another child being born. All the while she can't. You can, you can start to feel that with her. 
can imagine her sometimes probably feeling confused or angry or ashamed or feeling broken. Because not only did she not measure up to the standards of worth in her culture, but she didn't get the deep longings of her soul fulfilled. And some of us know that place. Some of us know that place very well where we don't measure up to the standards of importance or value in our world. And so we feel worthless. Or we know the grief of the unfulfilled longings of our hearts. The grief of not having that child or that spouse or that parent. We know that grief. Or some of us know the grief of a lost dream or a lost desire that we've wanted so badly but we just know it's not coming. Or the grief of unanswered prayers. Or some, some may know the, the exact grief of Hannah, the grief of barrenness. And Hannah did not need any reminding of her pain. She, of course, couldn't forget it. And yet, the book of 1 Samuel tells us that she had a rival who loved to provoke her. Boy, how evil is that, right? This woman whose every day is pain, doesn't need reminders, has a rival right by her side who delights in her pain. Right? What does it say? Her rival used to provoke her grievously not on accident, but purposely to irritate her. That's what it tells us. Her goal was to irritate Hannah. She would delight in her pain. And it's interesting, where does, where does the word tell us that this provoking happens? Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So where does it happen, the provoking? Where is it most intensified? At the house of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That when, what is supposed to be a time of worship... What is supposed to be a time of rejoicing and celebrating that we can be in the presence of God, that we can have forgiveness and remission of sins. What, what is supposed to be a joyful time for Hannah is not. Because every time she goes to the house of the Lord to worship, her rival is right next to her, gearing up for another round of accusations and tauntings. Does that sound familiar to you? Church, does that sound familiar to you? Is it not when we resolve to worship the Lord that it seems like the devil lies even closer at hand to us? Does it not feel like in those moments when we've decided, I, I want to worship the Lord, I want to read the scriptures, I'm going to run to Him, I I'm going to reach out to a friend and confess sin, does it not feel like in those moments that the pain rises up in our stories, the shame that we've tried to forget and take to Jesus, the devil reminds us of. Right? The accusations of our sins and our, our pain and our unworthiness seem to just reverberate in our ears in these moments. And in fact, for some, church is the most painful place. 
sometimes because of the enemy, he wants to make it a painful place, but sometimes because there's also literal paninas at church delighting in your pain. Let's be honest about that. The church is meant to be God's set-apart people, and yet there are many not behaving like that and hurting one another and bruising one another and delighting in the pain of others. And so we know this as followers of Jesus, if you are one. We, we, we are not deceived that simply by following Jesus, then the enemy will just leave you alone because, well, they've, this person's decided to follow Jesus, so... Case closed, I'll move on to somebody else. No, is it not when we resolve to worship the Lord and run to Him that it seems like that's when Satan wants to stop you the most. That's when he wants to discourage you the most. And so we even see this in the life of Jesus, right? Right? What, what, where does He have to go before the cross? He also has to go to the garden. And in the garden, he's, 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 it tells us that He's grieved and He's anguished and He's sorrowful to the point of death means he's so sorrowful and anguished he could die. In, in, in Jesus' most pivotal moments of obedience, the enemy is close at hand. So it was for Hannah. So it is for us. I think Satan knows if he can keep Hannah's head down, if he can keep her discouraged, feeling unworthy, keep her so inwardly bent that she will not cry out to the Almighty God, he knows that he can keep her from seeing any kind of miraculous work of God in her life. He'll keep her head down. She won't pray. She won't run to the Lord if he can keep her discouraged. There's something deeper going on here, and it's interesting because the word rival... That's literally what the word Satan means. Rival. Adversary. There's something deeper going on here. So the enemy wants to make, for Hannah, he wants to make the house of the Lord the most painful place. But there's some seeds of hope sprinkled throughout here. One of which is we're told that it was the Lord that closed her womb. And that's actually a seed of hope for us as we read the story because if the Lord had closed her womb, then we know He can open it. And we're also told something interesting. It's a really sneaky reference, but in verse 8, Elkanah comes to her, his wife Hannah and he says something that we kind of laugh at, you know, especially with a man who's taken another wife, where he says, Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And our response is like, Dude, don't talk. You married another wife. Your love means nothing, right? But it's like a sneaky reference here to another barren woman further back in the Old Testament, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, who also was barren. And while she was barren, Jacob had ten sons to his other wife, Leah. And so here in here we have this we have this seed of hope being sprinkled here where we read those words and we should be reminded back to another barren woman named Rachel. And the scriptures tell us she was barren and Leah bore 10 children, but then something happened. And the phrase is this, the Lord remembered Rachel. And when he remembered her, he opened up her womb and she birthed Joseph. And we're meant to, I think, be reminded there's been other barren women in the Old Testament. 
Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was barren. And then the Lord opened her womb. Rebekah was barren, and then the Lord opened her womb. Rachel was barren, and then the Lord opened her womb. Something might be on the move here. And it's right after this reminder, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And I wonder if that sparked for Hannah a remembrance of the story of Rachel. To say she was barren, and then the Lord remembered her, maybe He'll remember me. And it's right after this reminder, it tells us in verse 9, Hannah rose, she got up, and she went to the house of the Lord. And here, as she goes to the house of the Lord, we move on from looking at her pain, and we see this plea that she makes to the Lord. She runs to the house of the Lord, which is beautiful. She goes right to the place of pain. Or as my wife said this morning so beautifully, she takes her tears to the temple. And she pours out her soul to the Lord. She runs to the God who opened the womb of Sarah to birth Isaac. She runs to the God who opens up the womb of Rebekah to birth Jacob. She runs to the God who opened up the womb of Rachel to birth Joseph and asking him to open up her womb. And she pours out everything to him. And it says in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed and wept bitterly. There is so much emotion and pain in those words. She weeps bitterly in the presence of the Lord as a broken woman. And it leaves me wondering this question, what do we usually do in those moments? Where do we usually run with that kind of pain? I know for me, it's often not to the presence of the Lord. Often in those deep moments of grief and pain and mocking and being reminded of what I don't have, uh, we want to escape. Let's uh, escape. Numb yourself with an experience or a substance or a TV show. Or just, be, just sit in your bitterness and be angry at everyone else. Or, or slander others. Or just run away from God and just wallow in self-pity. We run to all different kinds of places but the presence of the Lord. And we see in Hannah, she runs to the temple with her tears. It's been said, many, many people have said this, I think it's a, a great phrase, that God's office is at the end of your rope. I like that. That when, it, when we finally come to the end of our rope and we realize I, I have nowhere else to go, I have nowhere else to turn, we find ourselves and we look up and we see that's, that's where God is waiting for us. Waiting for us to realize that. Because the truth is, for us, we will not believe that Jesus is everything we need until we realize, actually, He's all we have. Until we're brought to that place where we realize, I have nothing, then we'll believe, oh, actually, Jesus is all I ever needed anyways. And so in many ways, it's the mercy of the Lord to bring Hannah to this place of desperation. And her pain makes her a theologian. Look at what she says in verse 11. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts. That title is really significant. 
She's addressing the Lord as the Lord Almighty. And here's why that's significant. This is the very first time in Scripture anyone has ever addressed God that way, with that title and that name. And it comes from Hannah. She calls Him Lord Almighty. That's significant. Lord who is able to do anything and everything imaginable. Even to be able to do the things I can't imagine. I'm coming to that God. It's a recognition from Hannah that I can do nothing to change my circumstances or my situation. But you are the Lord Almighty. And Hannah in this moment tells all of us what prayer is. That's what prayer is. It's a recognition. I am weak. I am not God. I am not Almighty. I cannot change any circumstance or any situation. I cannot provide for myself. I can't change anyone. I can't bring joy into my own life. I can't bring meaning into my own life. It is only the Lord Almighty that I am calling out to to do something. That's prayer. Listen to me, church. This this Lord that Hannah runs to is the same Lord that wants you and I to pour out all of our pain at His feet. This is the same God that we get to run to with our grief and our brokenness and our weeping and our tears and cry out to Him as Hannah does here to be deeply distressed and weep bitterly before he wants that from you. He wants your whole heart, your whole soul, just pour it out at His feet. There is nothing that we can bring to Him that is going to disgust Him or surprise Him or make Him flinch. He is not your accuser. He is not your rival. He is your advocate. He wants you to come with those things. And if we don't believe that, if we doubt that for a moment, let us look to the cross where we see Him standing in our place, where we see His love for us on full display, where He goes where we should be and receives the wrath of God for our sins. Let us look to that place, which is this everlasting invitation, the cross. It's this everlasting invitation to come. Come to me. The one who loves you. The one who knows what you feel. The one who feels what you feel. The one who wants to embrace you. The cross is this everlasting invitation to all of us again and again. Come. Come to me. Pour yourself out. In fact, this is what Hebrews 4 tells us. It tells us this. We do not have a high priest, who is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Translation, he's felt everything you've felt to a greater extent. Because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. Because of the cross. And so Hannah runs into the temple and the priest, Eli, he doesn't even recognize true worship. 
He sees her pouring out her soul to the Lord and he thinks she's drunk. The priest, okay, mind you, this is, this is the man, the one that is supposed to be helping the people of God worship and he himself cannot recognize worship. He confuses worship for sin and in many ways becomes another accuser to Hannah in this moment. But thankfully, Hannah doesn't run to the priest. She runs to the great high priest, Jesus. She runs to his presence who knows her story and feels her pain. And as Hannah is mocked, Jesus feels her mocking. As Hannah is barren, Jesus feels her barrenness in the dried up people of Israel. As Hannah longs to have a son, listen, Jesus longs to come as the son to rescue her and all of the sinful wayward people of Israel. Hannah shows us the goodness of Jesus. The one who's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so church, may you carry your griefs to Him. May you carry your tears to the temple. And look at what Hannah asks for. She asks for a son, but not just a son. She asks for a son that will belong to the Lord. That's what she asks for. She's not simply just asking for her womb to be opened so that she can have a son. She's asking for a son that will belong to the Lord. And vows to give this son to be in a priestly role for all his life. And, and what's referenced here is by a, a razor not touching his head and, and being a servant of the Lord all the days of his life. This is what Scripture re refers to as the Nazarite vow, which was this dedication of someone. It literally just meant to be set apart to the Lord. And she's vowing to give this son to be a son of the Lord. And this is not Hannah bargaining with the Lord and trying to convince him by saying, well, Lord, if you'll open up my womb, I'll do this for you. You do this for me, I'll do this for you, right? Don't you like that deal, God? No, that's not what's happening. What is happening is she is asking God to raise up a son who will be his son and use him to intercede between God and the people of Israel. Hannah is praying for something much, much bigger than just her son. She's asking for God to raise up His Son. A Son that will belong to Him and be in the temple and intercede, which is what a priest does, intercede between man and God. The dried up, broken, barren people of Israel. Lord, bring someone to intercede. It's as if Hannah is asking for a son for a specific purpose. It's as if she wants to see the Lord bring a new season for Israel. And so she prays this. She pours out her soul to the Lord. And then she leaves. And she leaves transformed. She leaves changed. She leaves rejoicing. It says her face was no longer sad and she went to go eat. She wasn't eating before. 
That was how deep her grief was. And yet she prays. And we would expect it to kind of be like she prays, then the Lord answers her prayers, gives her a son, and then she rejoices and is transformed. But that's not what happens. She prays and pleads and runs to the Lord and leaves transformed and rejoicing before she's seen her prayers answered. And then we get the phrase that we saw in Rachel's story and has actually been a repeated phrase throughout the Old Testament. In verse 19, And the Lord remembered her. It wasn't as if he forgot. God is all-knowing. He doesn't forget like we forget. Like I was hanging out with uh, uh, a friend the other day, and uh, they, were, they were coming into our house, and uh, I won't say who it was, cause, uh, there, but there was a child, and we all walked into the house and left the child outside. And then we realized, uh, where's the kid? Opening the, and then we opened the door, and the child is weeping, thinking we all forgot about the child, <laughs> right? It was like for five seconds. It was a quick forget. But the Lord doesn't forget like that. He doesn't, it's not as if Hannah just kind of was about doing her thing and it was the Lord was like, oh my gosh, Hannah. Now, the Lord knew her the whole time, but this is a theological statement. The Lord remembered her. He remembered His covenant with Abraham to bring a blessing to all the nations through the family of Abraham. He remembered His covenant with Moses to be a God to His people. And when they would turn to Him and, and cry out and call to Him, He would be their God. He remembered Hannah. He saw her in her pain. Which is a beautiful reminder for us that He sees you. Broken one. Barren one. Grieving one. Weak one. And He remembers Hannah and opens her womb. And what's beautiful here is we see Hannah's faith in the Lord shifts the entire trajectory of God's people. Let's not lose sight of the fact she is a woman. And it is her faith that shifts the entire historical trajectory for the people of God. God's women play an extremely vital, important role in His redemptive story. It is not just the men. It is not just the patriarchs. Though the Lord uses them too, it is also God's women that He uses. And He uses Hannah in an amazing way to change the entire history of Israel and future of God's people. Honestly, the more I learn about Hannah, she is a pioneer in Scripture. There are many things that are referenced here that are so foreign she is the first woman to go to the house of the Lord on her own. She's the first person ever to address God as the Lord Almighty. She's the first, I believe, I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure she's the first, either the first woman or the first person, I should have double-checked this, to make a vow directly to God. I think she's the first woman to do it. To directly make a vow to the Lord. Hannah, her faith in the Lord was amazing. Her faith isn't the hero of the story, but who her faith is in, that is the hero of the story. But the power that we see on display in Hannah's story does not come from, and this will be a theme throughout 1 Samuel, the power that's at work here does not come from Hannah's position. She is not in any place of power. It comes in her posture. 
she comes weeping and weak to the Almighty God and says, I can do nothing, but you can do anything. That will be a theme throughout this book. The Lord will use the weak. Salvation will not come by might or by force or by power. It will come through humble dependence on Yahweh. And so the Lord remembers Hannah and she births a son, Samuel. And years later, she comes again to the same house of the Lord in Shiloh to worship, except Samuel this time does not come back with her. She leaves him there. And you know those moments where like you decided to do something, like you really passionately decided, I'm going to do, I'm going to go on this diet. I'm going to like dedicate myself to this thing. And then like a couple moments later, you're like, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Right? Like you start a diet and then you show up to some, somebody's house and they're serving like the most delicious loaf of bread you've ever seen. And you're like, I, I decided I'm not going to eat it, but oh, it looks so good. Oh, I want That's not Hannah in this moment. She doesn't have that moment. She gives her son to the Lord. And Hannah's loss. I mean, imagine that. The son she's longed for her whole life the son she prayed for, and the Lord miraculously opens her womb and gives her, she then has to give up. Her loss will be Israel's gain. She loses a son, but she gains a faithful leader for the people of Israel. And it causes her to worship, which is what we see here in this last section in chapter 2. She, she gives Samuel to the Lord and she lets out this song of praise. And it is beautiful. And it is so prophetic in so many ways. It is so much grander than, than just what happened here. It's as if she understands that the Lord opening her womb was not just about her and her family. It was about something so much bigger. And there's only three permanent people in Scripture that are Nazarites that take that Nazarite vow for their whole life. There's only three of them. One is Samson that we see in the book of Judges. Another one is John the Baptist. And the third one is Samuel. And John the Baptist comes and his whole purpose is to prepare the people for King Jesus. Which tells us what Samuel's purpose will be. He will prepare the people of Israel for King David. Who is preparing the earth for King Jesus. And so, don't miss this, that in answering Hannah's prayer, God is preparing the way for Jesus. So through her humble prayer of faith, Jesus is working a redemptive story to bring the Savior of the world. That is epic. <laughs> in many ways, Hannah's prayer comes, becomes for us a table of contents for the whole book of 1 Samuel. But in many ways, it also points us to the coming of the Messiah, to Jesus. Because I think Hannah knows when God starts opening barren wombs, He's about to do something crazy. He's about to do something massive. He starts working when He opens barren wombs. And what she says here at the beginning of her prayer in verse 1 and 2, she's delighting in the Lord. She's delighting in Yahweh, which is significant because I would think she would delight in her son. The Lord gave her the desires of her heart, answered her prayers, delight in the birth of Samuel, but it's not what she finds her delight in. She finds her delight in the Lord. He is my rock 
There is no one like him. She finds all of her worth and her significance not in her answered prayers, but in who her God is. She delights in him and it causes her to boast over her enemies. Boasting, we talked about this in the book of First Peter, boasting in and of itself is actually not a bad thing. It depends on what you're boasting in. We are told to boast in the Lord. That's what she's doing here. She's rejoicing because of the salvation that the Lord has brought. Not only will she rejoice over her rival Peninnah, but the people of Israel will rejoice over their enemy, the Philistines, who is their enemy at this point. And then Hannah launches in the rest of her prayer. And it's, it, she foresees an abundance of reversals that are going to happen. Things that used to be this way that will now be this way. An abundance of things that are reversing and switching. And they, they impact every area, right? There are spiritual reversals, social reversals, economic reversals, political reversals. All these things that Hannah foresees. Listen to some of them. She foresees that the mighty will be broken and the weak will be strengthened. The full ones will go hungry and the hungry ones will eat. The barren ones will birth children, but the fruitful ones will languish. Life will come from death. <laughs> Resurrection. Her but not only from her womb, but there will be more that's coming. Right? The poor and needy will be raised up to a place of honor. The high will be thrown down. The lowly will be lifted up. There's all these reversals that Hannah sees. Because I think Hannah sees what happened to her on a small scale. God was about to work out on a larger scale in the people of Israel. And we'll see so much of this happen, actually, in 1 Samuel. But the true fulfillment of all of these great reversals will only come through the coming of God's anointed one. And look at how this prayer ends. In verse 10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. Here goes Hannah again. The first time this phrase appears in the Bible. Very first time. The phrase, His anointed. And why does that matter? Why is that significant? Because the phrase, His anointed, means this. Messiah. The first time Messiah is used in the Old Testament comes from Hannah's prayer. To say the only way these great reversals come out is if the Lord raises up His Messiah. And when He does, His work will put these reversals into action. Because this is what the Gospel does, friends. This is what the work of Christ does. Right? Jesus would become the poor and the lowly. He would be rejected and broken. He would be crushed and He would die. And it's through Jesus standing in our place that all these reversals happen. Right? He becomes poor so that we can become rich. He becomes sin so to make us righteous. He becomes condemned so that we can be accepted. He dies so that we can have life. And so now for everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who repents and puts their faith in Him, the dying to self brings life in Christ. Losing your life means finding it. Surrendering means having life and freedom. Humbling yourself means being exalted. Repentance of sin brings righteousness. Weakness brings God's power. All these reversals that happen through the work of Christ, through God's anointed one. 
But she tells us that this kind of work, this kind of mercy and protection and love from the Messiah is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. It is only for those that are His people. Only for those who will repent and believe and follow Him. It is not for those who reject their need for Him and oppose Him. Right? What does she say in verse 9? The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder. Jesus' mercy and love and protection is not universally for everyone. It is only for His people. Hence the urgency to repent and believe. And so Hannah plays this pivotal role, not just in the, this book, but in the story of God. That all of these things she prays and praises the Lord for, seeds of them will happen throughout this book. But all of them would come not through her son Samuel, but through another son, through the Son of God. Not through King David, but through the true King Jesus. And how fitting it is for Hannah to be the one to proclaim that God would give His own Son to save us. Because as you look at your story, you're reminded of the story of Jesus, are we not? Right? That Hannah, the one who miraculously gives birth and then freely gives up her one and only Son to serve the Lord. How fitting that Hannah's song would find an almost mirror reflection in the New Testament in another song sung by another mother named Mary who when she miraculously gives birth to her son Jesus and prays to the Lord, whose words does she use? She uses Hannah's words. Because, as one person said, what, what Hannah saw in seedling form, Mary saw full blossom in Jesus. Because Hannah's son points us to the better son. The hope Samuel brings for a renewed Israel points us to the better hope that Jesus brings to renew us. See, this is not just a story of some woman that the Lord just gives a son to. This is an epic big story that God is writing. And in 1 Samuel, everything's about to change for the people of Israel through the coming of this son. And for us, everything has changed through the coming of God's son. And the work God did in the life of Hannah and in the people of Israel, He's still doing that now. These great reversals that Hannah talks about and, and foresees, God is still doing those today. And I can't help but get away from the fact that all of this comes about because God draws Hannah to humble dependence on Him. As Hannah humbly comes in prayer and on her knees in dependence on the Almighty God, he uses that very small little mustard seed of faith and does something way bigger than she was asking for. Way bigger than she could ever imagine God was doing through her prayers. We also have no idea how many thousands of times Hannah's prayed this prayer. How many thousands of times she's poured out her heart before the Lord and the answer's been no. And yet this time, the Lord remembers her and says yes. 
takes an, he takes an unimportant family, an impossible situation, a, culturally a worthless woman, and through her, he prepares the way for Jesus. And so church, may we run to Jesus, the one who knows our grief, the one who knows our pain, the one who wants our tears, wants us to come to Him with the unmet longings, the, the unfulfilled desires, the, the grief, the pain, the sorrow, the shame, the brokenness, the bitterness, all the things, and lay it at His feet, trusting that He's going to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Right, we're told that in Ephesians 3. He is able to do far more than you and I can ask or even possibly imagine. He does that in Hannah's story. He hasn't stopped doing that. God wants to do so much. And He loves to do it through humble dependence. Not through strength, not through power, not through might or grit or discipline or effort, but through surrender. can't help but wonder what does God want to continue to do through humble dependence in us through our church I'll say this and I don't mean this as a in any way negative though it sounds negative initially I look at our church and I think we have a really weak church we have a lot of burdens a lot of grief and stress and pain and weakness and brokenness and I love that. And you should too, because what I'm seeing in our church, I'm seeing a willingness in so many of you to say, I'm weak. I'm not strong. I, I don't have it. I am not almighty. I have a lot of brokenness. I have a lot of pain. I have a lot of hurt. I have a lot of unmet. I don't, I have so much weakness. That is a good place to be as a church, to find ourselves in a position of surrender, of weakness, to say, Jesus, we need you. I only want to be a part of a church like that, a church that's not saying, we're good, we're strong, we're, 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 we're mighty, we're powerful, we're, we have a lot of strong giftings, and look at what we can do. No, I think the Lord's calling us to be a weak church. A dependent church, a humble church, because it's through our weakness that His power is put on display. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, You have worked so many of these great reversals already. You have given us, through the work of the cross, You have given us the freedom to surrender and admit that we are nothing, we are weak. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be righteous. We cannot provide for ourselves. We need you. And Lord, I know that you see all the grief, the angst, the struggle, the pain, the, all the things. You see it in us. And Lord, you give us this invitation to not hold those things, but to come. To come to you and find rest and comfort. And so, Lord Jesus, even right now in this moment, draw us in. 
help us cry out to you. Knowing that you hear us, that you are near to us. And Lord, even if we don't see the miraculous works that Hannah saw, we know that you're still good. We know that you're near to the brokenhearted. We know that you have worked the most miraculous thing of all in redeeming us and saving us, and you can give us delight in that. Lord, we want to see your power on display. So Lord, we just we place ourselves in a position of humility before you, saying we need you, Lord Almighty. Come and minister to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.